So the text of John 13 is on the left side, and reflections are on the right side. And we talked about uh, deep meaning indicators in that text uh, last week. And we said that there were seven, which just takes us out of the realm of the moralistic story and into the realm of John's gospel theology. The Passover, the hour, you see on the right column there, Redemptive love, the work of the devil, Jesus' self-identity, Jesus' self-emptying, and the final one, finished, when he had finished. Uh, and that's the same word that was used from the cross. Um, I am finished. Uh, it is finished. And then we talked very briefly about the contrast, or the similarity, I should say, between John 13 and Philippians 2. And I've outlined it there. I don't know if I was very clear last week. You see the parallel there between laying aside his outer clothes and laying aside his divine nature, taking the towel and taking the form of a slave, washing the disciples' feet, becoming obedient to death. Number four, finished, he resumed his place. Finished, he's exalted to the highest place. Five, I am your teacher and Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So Philippians 2 is kind of a hymn that sings John 13, you might say. We talked about two object lessons, the towel and the basin, the bread and the cup, and they signify really the essence of Jesus' kingdom strategy. I was really pleased in reading Jake Tapper's book, Outposts. Jake Tapper works for CNN, as you know, and uh, before he started working for CNN, when he still was with ABC, he wrote a book entitled The Outpost, An Untold Story of American Valor. And it's the story of, at least in part, uh, First Lieutenant Ben Keating. Ben Keating was a soldier in Afghanistan who was greatly taken by the truth of Jesus Christ in the gospel, and particularly this story. And this is how Jake Tapper tells the story. It's, a, it's really a wonderful testimony in his book. As a kid, Keating spent hours reading his copy of David C. Cook's The Picture Bible, a 766-page comic book version of the entire Bible. But Keating was particularly impressed with Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Tapper quotes the passage in John 13 verbatim. The whole text of John 13 really is there. When Keating received orders at combat outpost Camdish to send back to the main base an eight-ton light medium tactical vehicle, he took it upon himself to drive the truck. Even though an officer and officers were precluded from driving the truck, but the road was so dangerous that Keating could not see giving the assignment to any one of his own soldiers because of John 13. And so under cover of darkness, he took the truck back. The road had deteriorated and the vehicle uh, slipped off the highway down a, a, a long ravine. Keating was crushed in the ensuing accident. And this is Tapper's conclusion. 
Keating was thrown from the vehicle and suffered massive injuries. In the end, First Lieutenant Keating's decision to drive the LMTV proved fatal, but it was a decision that also proved his faithfulness. He made the sacrifice because of his commitment to Christ and the Jesus way. He said, a lot of people may have come to the conclusion of driving that truck, not from Christian reasons. This is Tapper, which I find amazing. But Tapper says, uh, the unique reason for Ben Keating choosing to do that was precisely because of Jesus Christ. And he says, uh, and that was Ben Keating. You don't ever ask your soldiers to do anything you wouldn't do, he would say. You have to serve them to get the best leadership out of them. Other soldiers might have come to the same conclusion in their own ways, but it was a safe bet that Keating was the only member of the 10th Mountain Division who'd brought with him to Afghanistan a copy of the Confessions of St. Augustine in Latin. I just find that story and the testimony of, uh, of Ben Keating, and I love that, that it, you know, it's in Tapper's book, and it's not simply, again, that moralistic, I'm going to copy Jesus, but it is the gospel deeply rooted by the grace of God that changes a person's life and how they approach everything in life and their responsibilities. I just put on this, France, you know, House of Cards is starting its fourth season. Not that any of you would be watching that, but uh, there's a almost a painful description of humility in one of the uh, episodes. Uh, a couple is mourning the loss of their teenage daughter in a car accident because the road is unsafe. And Francis Underwood, played by Kevin Spacey, uh, a ruthless congressman who stops at nothing to conquer anything and everyone, goes back to his home district and he feigns humility with this couple that he pretends to be very uh, contrite and he will do whatever he can uh, to change the, the, the road. And so he feigns this humble contrition, contrition before uh, the parents grieving the loss of their daughter. And Underwood turns to the camera, and you know this is a tactic that they use in House of Cards, turns to the camera and says, what you have to understand about my people is that they are a noble people. Humility is their form of pride. It is their strength. It is their weakness. And if you humble yourself before them, they will do anything you ask. Now, I think that's kind of the epitome of using humility as a kind of tool to manipulate people. And of course, that's the exact opposite of humility. That's actually taking the virtue and uh, abusing the virtue for the sake of what you can get out of it. What we find here is a radically different way of approaching uh, humility. One, and I, I compare House of Cards and Francis Underwood and Kevin Spacey with Thomas Akempis' imitation of Christ. And that's more where Ben Keating is coming from. What does Christ my Lord do, and how, does that, um, how should that impact um, how we live? 
Any comments or questions at this point? Uh, this, yeah, this is the devotional book that I wrote from which these weeks are... I remember I, three, three years have been spent in the upper room for me, uh, reflecting and thinking about the upper room. Uh, three years ago, I worked on John 13. Uh, last year, I worked on the God who comforts John 14 and 15. And then this year, John 17, the God who prays. So this has been, and I actually find this kind of frustrating because, you know, you've taken a ton of time to try to write out almost phrase by phrase, uh, reflecting on this particular text. And then to, it should be the easiest thing in the world to talk about, right? But it's, it's different genres of uh teaching a class which is different from the kind of close work. But here, let's go on to Logos Logic. Uh, Verse 6 of this passage, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? It's interesting, Augustine thinks that, of course, because of Peter's position in the church historically and traditionally, that he came to Peter first. And I don't think if you read the text very closely that he came to Peter first. I think that Peter is somewhere down the line. And it's had an opportunity to kind of build up in Peter's mind what he's going to say. And uh, and you can just imagine yourself. I mean, here's the... Uh, Peter always comes across, especially in the pre-passion, pre-resurrection Peter, always comes across as somewhat <laughs> arrogant. And it's like I'm waiting for my time um, to show that I'm better than everybody else. So he comes to Jesus. Uh, Jesus comes to him. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Now, what does that make you think of? earlier in Peter's dialogue with Jesus. In Matthew 16, you've got the great confession. Uh, You are, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Remember, when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And he lists sort of the popular prophets. um, And Peter's, And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That clear confession. But then moments later, in Matthew 16, you've got Jesus talking about the necessity of him going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And you remember what Peter says in response to that. Never, Lord. So here's a second kind of never. Um, Along the same lines. Peter gets the confession right, but he doesn't understand the commitment. He doesn't understand what's involved with this. And this is like so many of us, isn't it? I mean, we get the confession right, but we don't understand the commitment aspect of it. We, it still is sort of a messiah of our own imagination, a, a savior of our own creation. And Peter is still sort of working off of his own own imagined savior 
this is, you know, this is beneath, from Peter's standpoint, this is beneath his Savior to be washing his feet. Um, yeah, and to me, there's a kind of analogy here with parenting. Um, you know, our kids really know us the best. They see us in all states. Uh, they see us in our weakness and our frailty. Um, they see us when maybe we just assume them not see us, but they see us. And uh, you know, uh, I, I joked with my my sons that the the, only, the the best way to assure that they would not wear what I didn't like them to wear is for me to wear it. Uh, that immediately turned them off. Uh, and it's just in this particular context, Peter finds this very embarrassing that Jesus would do this. Um, I was listening to a message on John 13. Uh, the pastor was doing a really good job of painting sort of the Palestinian picture and the the need for uh, feet to be washed because of the way they did hospitality and and all of that. And then he's developing this contrast of, of humility in the service, the servant class. And, and I mean, it, a host would never wash the people's feet. If, it, if there was not a servant available, then children would wash. Uh, the host would never do that. That would be um, demeaning. And he's developing this, and then he says, you know, uh, be like the high school student really reaching out to the high school girl really reaching out to a kind of um, ostracized and marginalized high school girl making that sort of uh, courageous step to reach out to somebody that's neglected and then he said but I certainly couldn't say that of a junior hire There is an altruistic benefit or plus for the high school student reaching out to someone lower and gathering her up and encouraging her. But in junior high, you'd just be despised for doing that. And he backed his, he kind of backed into what I think is the real meaning of this passage here. Jesus is not getting kudos for doing this. He is making himself look bad in the eyes of the very people that he's master to. And sometimes I think we in ministry, really we, you and I, as we minister to children, sons and daughters, as we minister to others, to really minister to them is embarrassing to them embarrassing to them the way we would minister and it's not embarrassing but the way we would be concerned about the truth the way we would share the truth the way we would humble ourselves before the truth may strike them as embarrassing along these same lines Does this makes sense um, Humble love is humiliating to the unsuspecting ego. 
Costly love can be misunderstood. Uh, Number three, the redemptive trajectory does not fit. There should be a not there. Number three, the redemptive trajectory does not fit with the high-minded Christian pragmatism. Oh, what, what do I mean by that? Um, those who would kind of uh, encourage you to turn to Jesus because your life will go better with Jesus are, probably aren't taking into account the kind of description here in John 13. That kind of high-minded Christian pragmatism. This is what Helmut Thielicke, um, post-World War II, famous German theologian pastor, um, whose works are really remarkable. For example, The Waiting Father, uh, his book on parables, which uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Andrew consulted in preparation for uh, today's sermon. Helmut Thielicke was very impressed with Charles Spurgeon for not selling the gospel for the idea of a better life. You're not turning to Christ so that just things go better, which is you know, very much a genre of Christian preaching today in our culture. There is a cost here. The cross is there. It looms large. There is a price to be paid. This is not so that you get along better in your culture. Um, Number four, Jesus worked with Peter patiently as he works with you and me. I'm amazed in this description of just, once again, how Jesus is so patient with Peter, bringing him along. Instead of sort of saying, which is what I think I would say in this setting, um, projecting quite a bit here, but, um, oh, Peter, forget it, I'll move on. Um, You know, I've had it with you. How long do I have to be with you while you, you still are always resist? You're saying never to me again? You know, haven't I said get behind me Satan to you before? I mean, what? come on. But that type of temper doesn't come through at all. Uh, Jesus answered, unless I wash you, verse 8, you have no part with me. And then, Lord, then, Lord, Simon Peter replies, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I mean, this is all sort of staged. (laughs) I'm waiting for Jesus to come. I'm going to tell him no. And then Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, then you have no part with me. And Peter says, okay, then just really wash me. From my head to my toe, wash me. And number six there, uh, this is a little quote from Eugene Peterson who I would say is a person that I I love what he does. Uh, Spiritual theology is the discipline and art of training us into a full and mature participation in Jesus' story, while at the same time preventing us from taking over the story. See, Peter is always kind of wanting to take over the story and make it about him. And that's never going to really work. Jesus answered, verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet and their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. This washing, there's another, and here I'm fishing, 
I, I'm casting at this point, okay? Uh, at least I'm warning you. Somebody else is going to take out a bowl of water and wash in this passion narrative that starts with Jesus with a bowl and a towel washing the feet of the disciples, who at the end of the day, within 24 hours, is also going to be washing. Pilate. Remember at the dramatic conclusion to this ins and outs of Barabbas or Jesus, Pilate somewhat dramatically asks for a bowl of water to be brought out and before the public, he takes that bowl and washes his hands as a symbol of washing my hands of everything. Put those two cleansings together. Those two cleansings are, are so... They kind of epitomize, don't they? Um, the deep-seated cleansing of the gospel that requires the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Uh, you know, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's name, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Um, this this blood that washes. Versus, I'm just washing my hands of this whole thing. And I, I, there's just sort of a dramatic contrast between those two. Uh, what is especially, this is a little bit off topic, but what is especially appropriate about the analogy of cleansing attached to the blood of Christ? That they were not aware of in their first century context, but we are very aware of in our 21st century context. What shall wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In one sense, that does, you know, blood stains, doesn't it? It's hard to get blood out. But what does the blood, what does blood do in your body? Gives life. Cleanses. It, it, give, it oxidizes, but it also is removing the toxins from your system. The liver and the spleen and the dead cells are washed out by the blood. So there's a beautiful medical analogy to the redemptive power of blood. Um, these two are, are tied together. Let's go to deliberate speech. Um, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, remember we said that's the seventh theological deep indicator that John embeds poetically in this passage. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? It's really interesting. In seven, he says, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And now he's asking again. I mean, it's... It's kind of like driving the point home. There's deeper meaning here than the surface meaning of washing feet. You know, and I want you to understand, but you're not going to understand. Uh, this is too preliminary probably for you to understand yet, but you will understand that there's something very profound happening here. Do you understand what I have done for you? And he asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, you kind of want to pay attention to the first, and I, I bolded them, made them bold. Um, the first person singular, 
I, 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 is just a repeated refrain throughout this. This is the authority of Christ coming through. And you put the humility and the authority side by side. And that's how it's supposed to work in the Christian life. That's how it's supposed to work, I think, in, um, in any kind of loving relationship. This humility and authority coming together. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So not only do we have the doctrine of the atonement made visual in an object lesson of cleansing, but we also have the praxis of discipleship, the way of discipleship, how we are going to live and move. Now, you know, what we need to wrestle with here is, I think, how we do our work, how we do um, and fulfill our Christian calling, wherever that is, and however God has moved in your life to create that space of, of Christian calling. How does this pertain to that? How does taking up the example of washing one another's feet how does that get applied? You know, think of it as kind of a continuum from foot washing to crucifixion. And our service lies somewhere between foot washing and crucifixion. In other words, there's always a true place for the exercising of God's call in our lives, for taking up a cross and following him. From foot washing to crucifixion. Taking up our cross and following him. And that that really encompasses a lot, doesn't it? Um, I, when I was in Toronto, uh, we, I did my PhD at the University of Toronto and we lived for 11 years there and our children were born there. Um, and uh, great deal of respect for Canadians and for uh, for Toronto. I did a course at the seminary there for business people. Christians in business was the title of the course. And I did it with an individual called Ray Binkley, who was a Shell Oil executive. We uh, designed the course so that seminarians would be more familiar with business and the kind of issues that business people dealt with. And we tried to structure it with integrity. That's why I co-taught it with an executive. Because um, if it was just me, there wouldn't be that kind of connection. Um, and we thought seminarians would really want the course, but they uh, we had uh, like 10, 10 seminarians in the course. We had 50 business people sign up for the course which gives you some indication of the hunger within the community for dealing with Christians in business, which was to the credit, I thought, of uh, the business community. So, you know, working all day and then a three-hour course from six to nine at night um, for 
uh, these business people, men and women. Well, Ray's story is really very interesting. For years, he was uh, one of the top sales writers for large uh, technology contracts. And uh, for years, selling people what way beyond what he knew they needed. Uh, but that's how you did business. And, uh, and very concerned on status, very concerned on the perks, just driven by that for years. And, uh, I, you know, he felt that the Bible was filled with religious platitudes. I mean, he believed in Christ, he was a Christian, honored the cross, but as far as practical daily living, not much help. And uh, had a serious car accident, spent three weeks in the hospital, a lot of soul-searching time, a lot of time that he had never really given to before, thinking about his faith. He came out of that experience a really changed, radically changed person. Committed now to only giving people the technology that they needed, not that he could sell them on. A different attitude to how to serve the customer. Integrating what he now was learning from the Sermon on the Mount with his everyday experience at work. Trying to respect the people that he had sort of walked over to get to the top. Really convicted about the image that's described here in, in John 13. If I, your Savior, have washed your, faith, washed your feet, uh, then you need to do the same to others. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. There's a mini course in discipleship embedded in here uh, that takes a kind of th- a, a lifetime. Uh, you know, I wash the... I've, you, if you're a parent, you've been washing your children's feet for years. And at times, the way you wash their feet embarrasses them. They just as soon not have that interest, but you know they need that interest. Um, this is an interesting dynamic to, to think through. Uh, finally, uh, we've got a few minutes, so let's try this. Uh, obviously, I was... Well, one last thing on the I, the I am emphasis. It's throughout here. Uh, if you read Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs, his biography on it, you will know that repeatedly Steve Jobs, when challenged on the kinds of things that he routinely did, was to say, that's just the way I am. That was his bottom line. That's just the way I am. As if there is no defense against that. I mean, this is who I am. That's just the way I am. You contrast that I am, and to be honest, don't we all kind of have a Steve Jobs inner voice (laughs) on that? Well, that's just me. If you want me, that's who I am. Uh, That's just the way I am. Contrast that with what the Apostle Paul said, but by the power of the grace of God, I am what I am. By the power of the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, to me, was not without effect. So, I mean, 
I take the I am of Jesus here setting up an example for us to practice and just mentally contrast that between the Steve Jobs, uh, that's just the way I am, versus by the grace of God, I am who I am. And you put those two in tension. Maybe I should stop there and ask any observations, comments, thoughts, confusions. See, I only got through two thirds, or no, one third of my, because uh, we got a whole second. Uh, Interesting, on the, on the next page, the second column, second toward the bottom, a false literal. That actually is covering the text that my, by my calculations in April, when I preach next, I will be able to cover a false literal. So I'm really thinking ahead here. Um, but... Uh, Somebody's going to betray him, so they all know it's going to happen. And you know it, and you still do it. You're, you're told it's going to happen. He says it's going to happen. He warns them. They don't. They are not able, for some reason, to figure out that it really is Judas. Now, Judas has either done such a great job of being totally contrary to anybody that would betray him, but he goes. Uh, you know, Judas goes out and they're wondering if he was going to buy food. They don't get it. Why didn't Jesus just explicitly say it's Judas? Why create an atmosphere among them all of self-questioning? Self-questioning themselves and self-questioning one another. Why create the consternation among them? Well, yeah, and I'd, I would kind of probably want to make a, a distinction between the treachery of Judas and the timidity of the disciples. I mean, they all, there's, there, I think there is a distinction here between betrayal and denial. The disciples uh, didn't even begin to piece the puzzle together to after the crucifixion. I mean, you know, after the resurrection. Right. Because, I mean, they were two different narratives you have you know they always were stumbling they always were falling they never could piece it together i mean they had components of it but they never had it and then it took to the after christ was resurrected did it all they kind of the glue came together is that oh sure i i i think that that's a very valid observation i don't think i don't think they would get it i mean he knew they wouldn't get it because they weren't going to get it till after christ rose well, I guess you could say that he's fine with giving them this feeling of consternation because they too are going to abandon him. I think another aspect is he really does protect Judas. Even at this point, he's protecting, he's loving his enemy. He's guarding Judas. Because if he identified Judas as the betrayer, what do you think Peter would do? 
So, so he's actually protecting Judas, and that's the extent of his love for Judas is, I keep giving you, I, I keep giving you this love even when I know full well what you're going to do. Why well, I, I got to let you go? Uh, let's close in prayer. Lord God, please bless us in this week. Help us to be faithful to you and take your example and the grace that you give to us seriously. Uh, Together we praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.